0: So welcome all um I would say this is the the season 1 finale of the 2022 podcast series where we featured Many wonderful GCs. Um, and I don't know if you've been on the Napaba website, but uh, it features this wonderful podcast that was the brainchild of Wilson Chu. I don't know if Wilson is here this morning, but as he was sitting at home in his pajamas in COVID, he thought that it would be a great idea to keep connecting with our community and what a a better way to do it than to, you know, memorialize this wonderful insights, experiences, and journeys of the NAPABA GCs that we have today that are, you know, very, very inspiring to the group of you here and also beyond. So Wilson managed to co-op Larry too, um, also out of retirement. He was sitting on the beach in La Jolla when he got this call from Wilson that says, "Hey." I need you to run these podcasts. And, you know, Larry is is a very humble guy. He was like, no, 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 I'm not going to do this. And Wilson's like, no, it's going to be for a good cause. And everyone's going to so much enjoy it. So, you know, long story short, I think, you know, these podcasts have been, you know, incredible to listen to. I've listened to them. We featured Lola Lynn, Sandra Leong, Alan Say, Don Lu, Marie O, Sam Sam Keechee, Carolyn Tsai, and Amy Tu. So a fantastic group of uh, general counsels that shared their insights, their personal stories and journeys, and that's all available for you guys to hear. So today I kind of have the unenviable task of stepping into Larry's shoes because he is um, otherwise indisposed uh, to be here today. So he sends his regrets, and I'll try and do my best. Um, So, but, you know, with me, I have what I consider two rock star general counsels. We have Michelle Lau and Ivan Fong, um, you know, who are going to be with us today. So we're going to do a slightly different format with two instead of one-on-one. And, um, you know, I think you may have seen in your advertisements that um, it was John Kuo who was going to sit on the panel today. (laughs) John is the organizer of this panel, and he is here this morning. And if you do have questions for him, we can have him available during the Q&A. But we're going to go ahead with, you know, um, Michelle, who is, frankly, fantastic. I'm very happy to have Michelle here. Um, Let me give you a brief introduction. Michelle is the Chief Legal Officer and Corporate Secretary of GoDaddy, which... I think many of you have heard of it. It's a tech platform that enables um, entrepreneurs globally. She covers law compliance, ESG, internal audits, government affairs, and and also sustainability. So she has a very broad remit, uh, very exciting role as a GC today. Prior to her role at GoDaddy, she spent 13 years at McKesson. That was her first in-house role, and she moved steadily up the ladder and was um, very, very successful. And eventually, her last role at McKesson was SVP, Corporate Secretary and Assistant General Counsel. Prior to McKesson, she spent her formative years at MoFo, um, you know, in corporate law department. But I think I'll give you one little fact of Michelle that you probably don't know. Her first job was actually in a little city of Wakayama in Japan. She was the international relationship, um, you know, sort of leader for, you know, the the Japanese city of Wakayama and, and U.S. relations. So, you know, Michelle started her career in a country that, you know, is... Is new, different, with a different language, and, and learned a lot from it. But, you know, as she shares her journey, you will see how Michelle's uh, adventurous spirit actually leads to a lot of interesting things as she, she grows into a GC. On my left is Ivan Fong. You know, most of you know him. I would say not much introduction is needed. Ivan is, um, you know, currently, this may be a new fact to you, he's currently GC of Medtronics. You might still think he's at 3M, which he spent the last 10 years, but he's actually moved on to Medtronics as their GC six months ago. So Ivan has spent the last 20 years, you know, in GC roles at Cardinal Health, at GE, um, in the Financial Vendor Leasing Group, and also at the um, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Prior to that, Ivan was at Covington Burling as a partner and also um, you know, spent some time at the DOJ as well. So just wonderful public and private sector experience that is so rich that you will hear from today. Um, Ivan has also been recognized as, you know, one of the 20 most influential general counsels by the National Law Journal and also top 50 general counsels in America. So, just an incredible career that most of us can only aspire and dream, dream of. <laughs> and, and with that, I'm actually gonna turn it over to them. Um, actually, I apologize for my voice. It's been really raspy because of the casino smoke. So, <laughs> but I'm going to let um, Ivan and, and Michelle share a little bit of some of their, you know, personal stories and what you might not see in their resume that I think is going to capture the essence of them. And also, I think it's so valuable to understand what their upbringing is, because that really informs how they are as people, as leaders, as uh, GCs today. So I'll start with Michelle.
1: Thank you so much, Selena. So I am a poor substitute for John Quo, but I'm delighted to be here. Um, you know, it's funny when you ask this question. I asked Selena, "Do you mean since I was hatched? Is that what you're asking?" <laughs> um, and uh, so I, I consider San Francisco my hometown, uh, but my family was actually living in Guam when I was born. We spent my very young years there. Moved to San Francisco. Um, and did a lot of travel um, with with my parents. My father in particular viewed travel as a part of education. so every summer and winter holiday we would travel either throughout the Pacific or Asia. One summer we went to Europe. Um, and even Guam was a little bit of a, a little bit of a spontaneous uh, event or adventure for my parents. My father was an immigration lawyer and he decided he wanted to be as close to Asia as possible but still practice in the US. Um, but that um, kind of ethos, right, of exploring new places and trying new things really informed a lot of my journey. It kind of is what prompted me to go to boarding school in Connecticut for high school. I studied abroad twice, um, once uh, in a semester in Paris, a year in Japan, and then, as Selena mentioned, went to work for the Japanese government before becoming a lawyer. Um, And even in my legal career, I feel like that kind of value that my parents instilled in us when we were young um, has helped me jump into new opportunities, one might argue, without great information or great diligence on occasion, um, but without a lot of fear.
2: And So yeah, thanks again for having me, and great to be here, very excited to be part of this panel. When I look back on my upbringing, um, first of all, like many of you, come from an immigrant family, and I think that explains a lot about who I am, just the Confidence that you get knowing that your parents came to the United States with very little, they left you know their life to start a new life um, you know new culture new environment new language I mean new everything, um, which gives me a lot of inspiration to try new things to uh, be courageous and just you know um, there's really nowhere to go but just keep 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 driving forward and so Um, I think that's been a major influence on my life, uh, as I'm sure it's been for many of you. Um, Both my parents are government civil servants. They're scientists, and so we had a very modest background. Um, But uh, growing up in that environment, we knew no lawyers growing up, and to this day I'm still the only lawyer in my family, extended family, who is a lawyer. Um, And so I think bringing sort of a science and engineering background, so I ended up studying engineering, uh, has been really beneficial to me because I view uh, what we do as lawyers as problem-solving. And so being, bringing a problem-solving mindset to whatever it is uh, that you're working on has, has been very positive. Uh, and then the third thing, I think, as you mentioned, Selena, my experience in the government, I know it's an important part of who I am and most of you to give back to our communities Um, and I do think having had experience in government doing public policy has made me a better general counsel. So we'll talk more about that later but I think those are three things in my background that I think um, uh, have prepared me and and sort of helped define uh, who I am today.
0: No, thank you, and, and I think, you know, that whole spirit of adventure and also adaptability, I think, Ivan, one of the things you mentioned to me, which, you know, coincidentally was same as Michelle, was you went to boarding school in Hong Kong as well, and that was a very sort of a difficult moment for you to leave home and, and be thrown to a different country, different language and culture. And I think the ability of, of for you both to adapt to something new and challenging I think also really helps, you know, in this journey as a general counsel. We all know that this is not a static job. We know it's getting more dynamic and much more complex, you know, as as all of you, I'm sure, are are witnessing day to day. So I think, again, some of these qualities that both Michelle and Ivan grew up with laid strong foundations for them to be able to really deal ably with their roles today. So, no, thank you for sharing that. So, you know, I, I. you know, it's interesting here because we have Michelle who is a first-time GC in her role. So congratulations, just a terrific journey to get there. And then we have Ivan who is in his fourth GC role. And you know, my question for him was, what still gets him excited? You know, what, what gets him out of bed to want to do that fourth GC role? And how does he keep that energy, right? So I'd like Michelle to maybe share her excitement and her journey to being the first time GC and right. Ivan being a fourth time in his role. So, you know, maybe, Michelle, do you want to take sure. it first?
1: Um, it, you know, in some ways I feel like my journey to becoming okay. a GC actually started at NAPABA. Um, I, <clears throat> frankly, never thought I was going to leave private practice. I went in-house uh, a little bit on a whim, and I very quickly realized that I had no idea what I was doing, that it was a completely different role, and that I needed some help. And so I just started Googling, um, how can I find a mentor? And I found NAPABA, and I emailed the general mailbox for the in-house counsel mentoring committee, and somebody replied and paired me with a mentor. and it was um, paired me with Wendy Sheba. And it was through those conversations that I realized, wow, you know, that's an incredible journey. That's something I'd like to do. And I remember her advice was, make sure you know why you want to do it. Right? Make sure you can articulate what it is that's attractive. That it's not just the default of you know, law firm lawyers want to be partners, and in-house lawyers want to be, want to be CLOs. And you know, once I had crystallized in my mind why I wanted to do it, I attended programs like these. And I actually remember my first convention, you know, 13 years ago, and coming to an event like this and seeing Ivan and Larry on a panel and hearing their stories. And I actually said to the person next to me, Oh my gosh, if that's what it takes, how do us normal people get there? (laughs) (laughs) But but over the years, I I mean I've learned so much from this community, and this is one of the reasons why I love Nepaba so much. But I've learned so many like Strategies and tips and supports. I mean, this this network that we have here, I draw on all the time when I am dealing with a difficult problem. You know, I've reached out to Alan and Ivan and John and Larry and Don, and and have never had them say no. Right? If I, if I say, can I just spend 30 minutes with you to just work through this problem? Um, it's been just incredible learning for me, and so I really attribute a lot of my journey. Um, you know,
2: to this really wonderful organization that we have. So I'll echo uh, Michelle's uh, comment about the importance of NAPABA in my journey to where I am today. Like Michelle, when I was in law school, I had no idea, I didn't aspire to, I'm not even sure I knew what a general counsel does. Um, and it really wasn't until I was well into my uh, early years of practice that I realized, oh, maybe being close to a business would be something interesting. And so I love being a general counsel. So the answer to your question of what keeps me going, and this is actually my fifth general counsel job. So GE, Vendor Financial Services, then to Cardinal Health, then to Department of Homeland Security, then 3M, and now Medtronic. Each one is different. You learn a new business, you learn new people, you learn a new way of doing things. It's endlessly fascinating. You are tied to a mission. I love Medtronic's mission of alleviating pain, restoring health, extending life. Right. So when you're in healthcare, it's just very inspiring and motivating to know that the products and we make and the services we deliver are saving lives, literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of patients every day around the world. Um, so it's it's really. Um, helpful to know what motivates you. What do you enjoy doing? What satisfaction do you get? I get a ton of satisfaction over the business counseling role. So we'll talk more about the being a business partner. How do you uh, add value by being around the table when they're talking about strategy, when they're talking about customers, competitors, technologies, and how you as a lawyer can add value, not just viewing the world through your legal lens, but with a broader lens of a senior executive, a senior leader uh, within the organization. So that's number one. Number two, I would say, being proactive and preventive. So when I was in a law firm, typically problems come to you after the initial phase has already happened. Either the, the dispute has matured, so you're in litigation, or maybe the, the terms, of the deal has been basically struck and you're there to, to finish the transaction. Any one of a number of things, I found that I liked not only being able to prevent bad things, but to be part of the ground floor when new strategies are being uh, developed. Um, and then the third is I love being part of a team. I love leading a team, learning from the team, figuring out how I can help the team grow and strengthen and being the leader of an organization the legal department I've just learned so much and it's so satisfying and rewarding you
0: know I mean that's that's incredible I mean I think that sort of summarizes you know again you know the passion that you know Ivan brings to the table and also how Michelle has viewed her journey you know, I just also wanted to share from the viewpoint of uh, my own, um, you know, job today. I do a lot of, um, you know, talent advisory and recruiting of C level board members and also general counsels. I think um, Ivan, you know, raised a very important point. If I ask a typical CEO, what is he or she looking for in their general counsel? And I think the answer is really close, if not, you know, 90% of what, you know, of the time, they'll tell tell me, we don't really want a lawyer lawyer. We really want someone who is a business partner. Yes, they happen to have a law degree and they do understand the risk that we're going to have to navigate, but we want them to first and foremost be part of the business. We want them to be a true business partner and to go through this journey with us. Yes, they will bring the you know their their inputs on risk mat- you know management and mitigation. They will hopefully see around the corners, but it's so important. And so I think underscoring what Ivan just said, as you go into your roles in these different companies, and as you select where you go to, it's really important to be a part of that business. Really try and understand the business. Don't just you know sort of sit back. And be that lawyer, you know, and, and you might as well then be out in the law firms as such, right, because that's when, to Ivan's point, the issues are already set, and a- it's thrown across the table.
2: A catchy phrase which you will remember is <laughs> somebody once told me, "Don't be a bobblehead don't be a bobblehead. <laughs> bobblehead is the person in the room who just nods, right? Either you agree, in which case you should describe or explain why you think this is a good idea, or if you disagree, you need to contribute as well so. Don't be a bobblehead. That's right, and and be
0: willing to speak up. And I'll I'll ask Michelle because she has gone from again also different industries like what Ivan has, but you know putting that whole first time GC role into the equation as well, and going into a GC role in a company. You know you you had a lot of experience in healthcare coming from McKesson and going into GoDaddy, very different. What did you do to help yourself, you know, get up to speed, or, or you know, quickly hit the ground running as much as fast as you can?
1: Sure. So, so first, Ivan, I I loved your comment about really getting to know the business and integrating, because we talk a lot at Godaddy about driving more value through integration with the business. So, my highest priorities when I started was to go on a listening tour. I met every single I have a department of about 90. I met every single person in the department. Um, and met key stakeholders outside of the department, including, um, at, you know, at the board level, um, and then peers in the industry. Um, because I have to say, jumping industries has been incredibly exciting and very humbling, because it really t- showed me how how little I knew. Um, but so meeting as many people as possible, listening to stakeholders, you know, asking them questions about what's gone well, what hasn't, and then really providing clarity to the department about you know, what is our mission. I mean, of course, you know, the mission of GoDaddy, and I also love that you talked about mission being important because the question, does the mission make my heart sing, is actually my first filter when I was evaluating any opportunities. It's so important. I mean, for me, if I just think about engagement and what gets people to rally around um, highest priorities and come and do their best, it really is about the mission. Um, so as a department, we asked, you know, wh- wh- how do we fit into the mission and the strategic objectives of the company? I think one, you know, important learning um, that I saw over time was that lawyers who, you know, to your point, Selena, this being more than just a legal ro- role, lawyers who focused on the risk mitigation were missing kind of eighty percent of the job, right? It's really about how do you try to advance while well, pr- advance the business. You know, while being prudent about stakeholder expectations about mitigating risk and doing it in a way um, that celebrates regulatory excellence, particularly in healthcare.
0: <laughs> no, thank you. And and you know, I think also, you know, Michelle, as you've gone through your journey, I think you know, it's it's that first time leap into the GC role that is, you know, that's that's quite a, you know, I'm sure with some trepidation. Um, I, I think that, you know, both you and Ivan have had a situation where you've walked into this new company. It's a new, you know, new industry potentially as well. And you're coming in and you're going to now lead this department. And, you know, there's a likely chance to that some, a few people in that department probably thought, well, why didn't we get this role? Right? I mean, isn't this... You know, this is a very common phenomena. You walk in there and it, it, you're, you have some incumbents or even internal succession candidates that were now, you know, put aside and you've now had to come in. You know, I'd like to hear how both Michelle and Ivan, you've dealt with it, Ivan probably, you know, a whole lot more times, and maybe even through your journey, Ivan, of learning over the different times when you've had to do that. How have
2: you managed those complex relationships. (laughs) So combining the the theme of learning and and NAPABA, I actually am looking out on this audience. And I see a number of general counsel and former general counsel. So I would actually like to ask those of you in the audience who are either general counsel or former general counsel to stand so that you can look around and the others can see you. So Alan, John, these are all people that I look to for advice and counsel. There must be more, so we've got a few more in the back. So anybody who aspires to be a general counsel, please, after this program, go up and, you can stay standing, okay, good. Um, go talk to them and ask them these questions because this is the only way we can leverage the wisdom in this room and, and obviously outside of the room. But the answer to your question is yes, this is a very sticky, political situation. I have faced it both ways in which the person who was either a deputy or somebody who was senior in the organization was a disappointed candidate for the job that I received. And I think it's important first to acknowledge that. I mean, if you're not even aware, then there's nothing you can do about it. And that was true for me in one of my early jobs. I wasn't even aware. And so the advice I would give my former self is to be much more Astute and 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 sensitive to the office political team dynamics Secondly spend some time with the person Acknowledge that you know, they were disappointed You want to work with them and that it's important that they know that you know This was not your fault, right? I mean, I didn't select myself the CEO or the board made this decision If there's feedback for the person, I think it's appropriate to talk about what kind of f- further ambition, maybe they can be a successor after, after you. Um, but the main thing is to make sure they are on board um, because I, I learned the hard way that if you don't, then uh, it can quickly turn into a situation in which you have somebody on your team who is either not engaged or worse yet, disengaged and actively undermining what you're trying to do. So, so it's a very important first 30, 60-day sort of um, uh, issue to get your arms around. Um, every case is different. Again, I've had it both ways, where I've had a very successful person who turned into a great deputy. Um, and, and that's sort of the best situation, where they recognize why the board or the CEO selected you instead of them, Um, But inevitably, there'll be somebody who won't fully um, internalize that, and often the best solution is to move them into another role.
0: And and to your point, I guess, making those early decisions, because you don't want it to fester, because it creates a very toxic potential environment. And they a lot, obviously have a lot of influence having been there for many, many years. So what about you, Michelle? Did you have to encounter that? And in, in yours, perhaps even harder because in a sense, they'll say, well, she's a first time GC. Right. Right. Why are we not as, be- right. as
1: better equipped than Michelle to do this? Uh, so I did have that situation too. And, um, and I was told that there were internal candidates who had participated in the process. So I asked both CEO, chief people officer, and the board chair, what do I need to know? (laughs) What do I need to know about those situations? What should I be aware of? What should I be sensitive to? Um, And then similar to Ivan, was just very candid and very transparent. I think as a general matter as a leader, I believe in transparency. I think sharing as much as we can. Um, is important and and having those candid conversations, and so I, I I was very upfront about it, and I asked, you know, what can I do, right? So let's talk about like why, you know, maybe maybe it didn't work out this time, but what can I do to help you get there next time, either here or someplace else, you know? How can we work together? And um, I, I I too drew on the people in this room and others to ask this very question for. Um, For advice about how to handle this situation, and um, I I agree that sometimes the best answer is like it's you know that person should move into a different role, but but I have one where you know someone with deep industry experience and deep company experience who has become really one of my most trusted partners, and in many ways I, I realized at some point I didn't I didn't even really make sense as a candidate without him. Right, because he can fill in those gaps that I don't have, and so it's actually—it's really ended up just working out so beautifully. So it's not always a bad thing. No, that, that's terrific,
0: and I—and I think you know what we're hearing from both of them here is—is is, you know you know humility be humble be always listening I, I think having you know sort of the two two years and a mouth <laughs> sort of uh, the, you know and, and, and speak less until you've really assessed the situation and and be deliberate about what you do because you know making those decisions everyone's watching you in that first 90 days right as as you become their leader um, both your own team and the business as well, so a lot of the decisions you make during that time will set the tone of your of your leadership style of your approach to issues so be very very careful don't don't take those as oh this is my honeymoon period you know let me just kind of coast along because I think to Ivan's point, giving him his earlier self some advice maybe you know not seeing those issues might actually be much more detrimental than than you know handling it and taking the bull you know by the horns quickly. You know, you you have shared um, you know that you know the, the role today I, I think you know I, I just love the fact that you know Ivan continues to be energized because we talked about how the general counsel role today is quite different from what it was maybe twenty years ago. I mean, it continues to be frankly much more complex, much more dynamics. you've got stakeholders um, who demand very many different things from ESG to you know um, you know type of issues that they raise to cyber issues we've got you know very, very tense geopolitical, fluid situations that we have to deal with again in the different industries. And also today, the, the younger population, um, you know, they demand a, a more purposeful type of leadership and enterprise. It's not just, you know, let's go make as much profits as we can. People want to, and, and you've also heard Michelle and, and Ivan say, they want to work for companies that they can tie themselves to that mission. Right? They can see a great purpose here as to what the company is doing. And so you know, as they go through this learning journey, I'd just love for Michelle to share how she's prepared herself in the last 20 years to frankly take on her first role during the time that it, it is that complex. And, and you do have a huge remit in your role beyond just legal. And then for Ivan to help us understand how he has evolved In his thinking and how he approaches the general counsel role, I think it's really interesting that we have both of them here that can share that dynamic difference, you know, in where they are in their careers. So I'll let Michelle go first. Sure.
1: Um, I think for me, and and I have to say, the non-legal aspects of the job are probably my favorite. (laughs) Um, For me, it's you know certainly a lot of it was was luck. But I think also being very intentional about identifying either the skill sets that I needed or the experience gaps that I had, making it known that I was very much willing to learn new things, to add to my portfolio, um, to jump into new experiences has been tremendously helpful. Um, I think back to you know kind of pivot points in my career, where an opportunity came up, and, and at times, I didn't, I didn't even actually know what it was. I mean, one in particular was um, I, I was asked if I wanted to take on a role being the face of the company vis-a-vis shareholders on the non-financial matters. So of course, there was an investor relations group, and I would partner with them on the ESG matters. I didn't actually know what shareholder engagement meant at that time, but I said, sure, that sounds interesting, because it was an opportunity for me to get to know a different stakeholder group. And um, so I, I said, yes, absolutely. And then I went running down the hall to talk with my colleague, who was the executive compensation lawyer, and said, what do I need to know about executive compensation? And then what do I need to know about governance? Um, but collecting those experiences, and also knowing that you don't have to do them forever. Right? Sometimes you'll do an experience, take on a, a project for a couple of years, and then move on to something else. But I think having that breadth um, of experience, it really sets one up well for the GC role because it, 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 there are bigger and bigger remits, for sure. Um, and being comfortable with that and, and, and being comfortable with a little bit of uncertainty. right? We often have to make decisions in uh, very dynamic environments very quickly with imperfect information. And so that can be uncomfortable, I think, particularly for lawyers. Um, but the more practice that you have at it, the
2: easier it becomes. So I'll start, Selena, by um, emphasizing your premise, which is that the job of the General Counsel has become increasingly complex and challenging over the last five, 10, 15 years. And you uh, identified many of the reasons, The, the globalization that's led to geopolitical tension and risk, the loss of trust in our institutions, so that being a company is actually uh, a, an organization that has higher trust than most, most parts of government and, and other um, institutions. I think you're exactly right. The, the younger demographic generation is looking for companies to take a bigger role, have a brand that, that stands for something, that has some values. Um, I also think that the company's reputation is yeah more important now than before so all of these things among others are ones that the general counsel plays uh, uh, a an important role in in shaping and so um, the flip side of these being just interesting jobs is that they are hard they're they're very hard and um, but the good news is you know there's a lot of support Um, you have a team Um, there are a lot of resources Um, and you learn right by trying new things and making mistakes. And, and we all make a ton of mistakes and that's how we get experience um, and judgment. I've been very fortunate you know, to have had um, just about every job I've had, I feel, prepared me for the next role that I've had. So whether it was being in a law firm, being in the government, uh, being in another industry. And my, my overarching sort of thought here is to become a T-shaped lawyer. right? So, so we are all or usually start as a specialist in some area. And if you're in a law firm or even in-house or in the government, you end up being very good at some area of the law. And, and that's a good thing, because that gives you confidence that you can actually do something. At some point in your career, and this is a big sort of turning point for many, um, how do you switch gears and become a generalist and, and, and broaden your experience base? And uh, you start slowly, right? Let's see, how do you eat an elephant? It's one bite at a time. So over time, you expand your interests and your experience into adjacencies. Um, and you take on broader responsibilities. So you volunteer to work on a project maybe outside of your area of expertise, or you talk to um, your manager, hopefully you have a mentor, hopefully you have a sponsor who's willing to take a risk on you and take a bet and say, look, I I think you can do this. Um, We all have people like that in our careers. Um, And then over time, have those breadth of experiences so that when you become a general counsel, uh, you will bring the broader perspective of somebody who's been, for example, in the government, so that if you have a, uh, a negotiation with a regulator, you have some inside sort of fingertips experience of what it's like to make policy and to make decisions um, on the regulator side. So uh, there's a lot to unpack, but mm-hmm. that's sort of a high level um, thought um, in response to your question.
0: No, thank you, um, you know, Michelle and and Ivan. I think what you're hearing here is also a very important point that they, you know, one is that it's a continuous learning journey as, as, you know, you collect all these experiences. But then secondly, I think what we're also hearing, which is really important, is your willingness to take risk, your willingness to sort of be sometimes doing things outside of your comfort zone, outside of your box, right? Because to go from what Ivan says to being sort of the, the vertical part of the T to the horizontal part of the T, you have to be doing things that are, like Michelle said, she had to run down the hall to ask, well, what does this entail, right? So I think making sure that you, know, you are open to those risks or, or opportunities as they come to you. And sometimes even seeking it out, Right, because sometimes you know your boss might say, "Well, gee, you're a great litigator. Stay in your lane. Don't you know? We don't want you out of it because you're so good in what you do. You sometimes get kind of trapped in your lane, right? And so you know, be mindful as you 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 um the only managers of your own career. So I'm going to give you guys this bit of advice here. Um, you know, yes, you might have mentors, you might have bosses and all that who who guide along the way, but you need to manage your Actively manage your own career. And so, as you look at this journey, like what Michelle said, you know, I had 20 years to prepare myself to be the general counsel and take on that first role. I gathered all this experience. You know, I think she heard from people in Napaba. What other experiences should she take on? I remember you told me you heard from John Kuo in one panel, where John says, This is a good thing to do. And she went back and she did it. She talked to her boss, and she got that experience. So it's really self-managing your career. But of course, once the opportunity is given to you, you know, you've got to nail it, right?
2: I mean, I mean, <laughs> so let me um, yeah. interrupt. Right. You know, the, the phrase that I was told um, uh, was to have your job. Your job is to be CEO of a company called Y-O-U, Right. You are CEO <laughs> of YOU, and it's the same point, right. right? You have agency. You need to be moderately intentional. And I say moderately because we don't control, really, the future. And right. so much of the people who are in this room would say being at the right place at the right time is huge. And, and I don't want to you know underestimate that or, even, or overestimate it. Right? So luck favors the prepared. So doing the kinds of things you're doing now by expanding your network, coming to programs like these, taking away little nuggets, and resolving to tomorrow or next week when you go back to work, are you gonna do that one thing that's going to grow you in your career? You know, but, but you know, again, all is not rosy, right?
0: So I'm gonna now turn to asking Michelle and, and Ivan the tough questions. When Maybe when you've taken some of these risks, or maybe when you've stood up, what you believe which is not the popular view when you've had some of these very difficult moments and they, they could end up being missteps right or, or not performing as well as you thought how have you you know maybe share some examples of you know a situation like that and how have you maybe recovered from it or take taken that lesson <laughs>
2: Tough um, one, they're looking at each other no, like, I'm happy to, should take it? I, I've made so many of <laughs> yeah, these I have I've, examples. I've yeah. learned. I mean, this is one from yesterday. This is, shows oh, you like right. just, okay. I, I'm constantly learning. So um, as Selena knows, this week I've been very busy because we've been doing strategic planning. And part of my effort to learn the organization, learn the businesses, I've, I've been going to the strategic planning uh, sessions where the business leaders are reporting on their strategy. So I've been listening, 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 and I feel like, oh, I should contribute somehow. So <laughs> yesterday, you know, one of the business leaders was presenting, and you know, I'm not a marketing expert, but I made a comment about how this seems like a really good market, and you know, this is really some, a kind of question or two that I had. And then afterwards, the CEO took actually he didn't have to take me aside, because what he did was he redirected the conversation about whether we should even be in this market to begin with. And what I learned from that is, um, I still tend to think pretty narrowly um, about the business. You know, I'm still learning, so maybe that's my rationalization. But I think thinking like a CEO or like a board member to ask that higher level, really fundamentally important question. Right? Should we play in this market? Do we have a right to win? Right, how are we going to win? And so I'm learning, right, how to elevate the conversation because the business people are so focused on delivering the quarter, they're focused on tactics. Um, and, and I think part of what I'm learning is when you really are sort of the business partner, you are you are asking the bigger picture questions.
0: No, that's that's um, you know. Thanks for sharing such a recent um, example. I, I I did meant to mean to ask you too. You know that that's so. You know I I think you're spot on about sort of raising the level of how you look at the enterprise, right? Versus you know being narrow again is going broader and up. You know you you've also recently you know started a board role, right, on the Chicago um, Board of Options Exchange. Um, has that helped you in any regard? I, I wanted. Sorry, you know, Michelle, but I thought you know this is an opportune moment for maybe Ivan to share that.
2: Oh, absolutely! It's it's a terrific experience, and if anybody is interested in serving on a public company or large private company board, you know, happy to. There should be an, a whole in the pop panel if there isn't one already on this topic because Asian Americans. There was a study recently um, produced that showed. Severely underrepresented on Fortune 500 boards, so so there is a huge need and demand, frankly, uh, for people like the people in this room. But yes, uh, I have learned a lot. I mean, I like in most things, you know, I I learn by watching other people who are very good at what they do. So, in these board meetings, there are a couple of board members who are just so good. I mean, even again this morning, I was on a Medtronic board call, and one of our directors like asked like precisely the right question at the right level, and I said to myself, you know, my my dream right is is to be able to be that person who asks the one <laughs> significant like, penetrating <laughs> question that 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 really, you know, refocuses management on on what we really should be thinking about. So it's again easier said than done, but. But it's a continuous learning it's process. It's a journey.
1: So I'd love to pick up a little bit on your comment about asking the higher level questions. Because that's something that, you know, I, I think a lot about, I talk a lot about with my team. You know, hopefully in all of your companies, your departments are enterprise-wide functions. Right? And having that enterprise-wide view, I think, positions you well to be the person in the room who can ask those of higher-level strategic questions, bigger picture. Um, but it also comes with responsibility. Because sometimes people who are deeper in operations or the function think very in a very siloed way about how do I drive my results, my department's, uh, what are my department's interests. We are also in a position to add value by being strategic connectors to help drive outcomes for the enterprise. So I view that both as, uh, a privilege and coming with responsibilities, and it's part of what makes the job, I think, so satisfying.
0: No, indeed, and and so maybe you'd like to share uh, your story of perhaps a risk that you took, that um, you know maybe, you know,
1: did not pan out quite as well, or or you've learned from. Sure. Well, maybe, uh, you know, uh, maybe I'll share a mistake, right? is something that I've learned from. Um, I think on some level, of course, I knew that you know every company has its own brand of crazy. They have their unspoken rules, <laughs> right? Every person has their own brand of crazy, for that matter. Um, but I, I don't think I paused. Actually, I know I didn't pause enough in the beginning to ask why, right? Like, why do we do it this way? Why was it set up this way? Sometimes the answer is, well, it was just kind of by default, and we kept doing it. And so then, you know, it's about bringing people along to continue to mature. But sometimes there are particular reasons, either, um, you know, something in the company's history or something that happened that was a lesson learned. And if you don't ask that question, why, you may lose, you may not learn your lesson, right? So maybe there are lessons learned, but you're not learning your lesson. So um, I made that mistake very early on where I saw something, and I said, oh, gosh, you know, this... You know, we can make this more mature, let's go do this. And then you know it was only through more conversations and unpack and I did not get a good reception <laughs> to, the, to the recommendation. And then it was only through kind of more conversations and unpacking it more that I realized, oh, there's a very particular reason why we do it this way and it's culture specific. Um, so for me, you know an early lesson in my tenure in this role was, to really ask a lot of probing questions. And I'm very candid about that. Like, I, I will say, I'm going to ask a lot of questions because I'm curious, not
2: because I'm questioning your judgment. So, the last part of what you said, Michelle, is really important because I have the counterexample of why asking why was the big mistake. Um, <laughs> I love some, it. In Do some tell. cultures, <laughs> in some organizations, asking why comes off as um, judgmental. Like, why do we do it this way makes it sound like we disagree or I disagree with the way we are doing things when, in fact, I am simply curious or I'm trying to understand the history, the origins, the, uh, how it is that we came to, to be where we are today. And so after one of these really disastrous meetings, um, somebody sent me a list of questions that I should ask instead of the questions that I ask. So they were I love it. softer versions. I'll send it to you. Okay, it's good. A, I, 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 keep this, I keep this list by my, by my uh, monitor, computer monitor so I can remember to ask these sort of roundabout ways mm-hmm. so that you don't, you're not challenging the way people do things. Because it is hard for somebody on the outside to come and sort of criticize the way we do things, which I get. I, I'm very sensitive to that, but I clearly am not or wasn't sensitive enough. And I had to, so another good practice is to do something called a new leader assimilation, which I did recently. And I decided to just make a big confession to say, I got off on the wrong foot. I apologize. I wish I could do that meeting over again. And in fact, that's what I did. I reconvened the same group. And I told the group, I didn't appreciate that the purpose of this meeting wasn't for me to solve the problem or to get us to the next decision, but rather you wanted to explain what great things you've been working on. So I needed to listen, not to just say, as I said, I've read the pre-read slides and I have a number of questions about why we do this, why we do that, and why don't we do this other thing, they were very offended. And so I asked for a reset, and I think that went part way to rehabilitating my ability to lead the group. And of all things, so I'll, again, this is all cone of silence, right? (laughs) So you can sign the CDA on your way out. No, this this was a meeting of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee, which I'm so passionate about, and so, I mistakenly wanted to show that, look, I get you are great, and now I'm trying to get you to an even higher place, but I needed to appreciate that. They needed to tell me how great they were, which I now acknowledge is so important. It really is important to let the team talk and explain, and you just listen. And I just had to really bite my tongue and say, this is great, this is great, you guys are great, you're amazing, you're (laughs) astounding. No, this is truly, I I said that with all genuineness, I think people need to hear the person in, in leadership recognize and acknowledge the good work that has been done before you you arrive that was the lesson learned sorry I
1: no no that's that's that's, no, that's a great that's one that's beautiful that <laughs> and and, and a, a really great piece of advice that I got along those lines was to always remember to celebrate the past right so the the to talk about it as this has been an incredible journey there's been incredible growth what amazing work but we're but it is a journey right and we have opportunities and we always want to get better so I love that, and I would love that list of questions. I could probably use (laughs) it.
0: (laughs) We should publicize that. It might be good for everyone.
1: No, so so thank you.
0: No, this actually sort of becomes the perfect segue, right? Because it's not um, always about being that perfect, smartest lawyer in the room. It's about how you lead. When you get to this level, it's about how you become a good leader, and better yet, a great leader again it's a journey and you know even Ivan having years as a leader and experience leading thousands of people continues to learn today continues to still sometimes stumble right but being able to understand that and continue to grow i think is something that we all need to be highly highly attuned to and and again Ivan's point of you know we, we need more asian voices at the highest levels that means you have to be a good leader, to be a voice that is heard and respected in the boardroom, at the C-suite. Let's think about how leadership is something that you also want to not forget to grow in your toolkit. Okay, So it's not about just collecting experiences. It's about you know, having emotional intelligence, being able to listen, being able to understand and feel the room, and being able to actually develop culture. In your department and beyond, that is what you aspire to. So, you know, with that, I actually do want to turn it down back to Michelle and Ivan to maybe describe their leadership journey and what do they aspire for their teams and what is the type of culture that they seek, you know, to create. And I'm sure a lot of this goes back to the fundamentals of who you are. And we sort of make that whole turn, right, of of the values that brought you here today.
1: Leadership is something that I think a lot about um, because I, to your point, Selena, I think it is so important um, as, as we continue to develop and grow. Um, the first premise for me and, and something that I share a lot with my teams is that I think that you can be a leader at all levels. Sometimes the word leader is interpreted as you know, the big boss or the manager, and I think it's really important that individual contributors, no matter where you are in your career, um, can be leaders. Um, another core attribute for me is you know, authenticity and transparency. Um, there are some leaders, as they grow in the ranks, feel that they have even less that they can share, and I and I view the I view it as the opposite actually, that the the more visibility I get, the more of a responsibility I have to cascade that to the teams. Um, it helps with engagement, It helps them put their work into context, it helps us keeping keep us all rowing in the right direction. Um, and then another core attribute for me is humility, like humility and self awareness. Um, Someone who does not have the humility to know what they don't know <laughs> or to, to admit that they, they made a mistake or that can ask a question is not a good leader. But, but humility is a difficult one. It can be a difficult one for Asian Pacific Islanders, and particularly for Asian Pacific Islander women. Um, I, I have actually had people say to me before, don't be so Asian humble. Right? So I, I think the, the flip side of the humility and being able to admit mistakes and learn from them is also being not shy about when you are the expert right? and expressing an opinion and conveying that you do have a valuable point of view to bring, that you do have expertise. Um, It's a little bit, as I think about, I love the T-shape professional analogy because, in some ways it liberates you just by by virtue of the visual. It liberates you from being the expert on everything, right? Because it's T, it's not a block. Um, And knowing that sometimes you have to ask questions, but also knowing that you need to hire the right people, right? I mean, a big part of the strategy for me is making sure to build um, a really good team. I often will say that I want to hire people who know more than I do about whatever their area is.
2: So I agree with everything Michelle said um, just to build on it. A few more things that I keep in mind. Um, I think every new leader has to answer three or four questions that are in the team's mind from day one or actually before you start, right? When you're announced, they want to know, who are you? Why are we here? Where are we going? And how are you going to get me there safely? So who are you? They need to know a bit about your personal background. In order to trust you, right, they have to know that you have the organization's best interest in mind. You're not here, this is not about me and self-aggrandizement and just, you know, getting promoted to the next bigger role. This is about me wanting to bring the team to a different place, which goes to number two. Why are we here, right? What is our mission? What is our purpose? People want to know and the leader has to be able to articulate why we are here. Why am I here? Why was I brought into this company? What is my mandate? I think that's an important part of leadership. Where are we going is the vision. What does success look like? Where are we such that when you look back, you will say, look at where we were, look at where we are today, right? We are closer to the promised land and this is how it will feel like when we are there. And then fourth, how will you get me there safely, is strategy. Usually you can't do that on day one, but you need to do the listening tour and the other kinds of work um, that Michelle has talked about. So that's sort of the the umbrella concept. I'd say, couldn't agree with you more. Communicate often. Communicate with authenticity and openly. I tell people, I'm going to tell you what I know when I know it. Right? I can't hide information from you because that just creates uncertainty and anxiety and people then don't focus on, on the broader mission and the purpose. So having trust that I'm gonna be as transparent as I can goes a long way. Number two, having a culture where people feel like they belong, that they are welcomed, that their work is valued. This is often under the umbrella of diversity and inclusion but it really is important to create sort of a one-team dynamic. You know, there are usually silos in your organization, and we all need to help each other, right? We can only do this, we can only achieve our mission and get to our promised land if we work together. And to do that, we need to build community, and that's what the second thing is all about. Number three, Michelle also mentioned, recognition. I do think it's very important to recognize the big and the small. And I need to do better at that, but that's something that that is important. And all in the service of building a high performance, high trust culture, the the one book that I recommend to all leaders about leadership is the uh, Stephen Covey Speed of Trust book, because without trust, um, you're not gonna get anything done.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, trust is the foundation. You can't have healthy conflict if you don't have trust. And you have to have healthy conflict in order to get to commitment, holding,
2: holding each other accountable, and then driving results. So, One more uh, comment about culture. Um, I'm a big believer in something called psychological safety. So there's another book that I recommend called The Fearless Organization, which is all about the importance of a culture in which people feel they can raise their hand, speak up, disagree, Without fear, yeah. if you are in an organization where there's a lot of fear, it is dysfunctional. You're just not going to get as much done, and ultimately, you know, people burn out. So, um, uh, fostering psychological safety through a high trust, not shooting the messenger, right? Um, encouraging the debate. Uh, the phrase I use is. Mind for conflict, Mm -hmm. right? When I'm in a meeting with my senior leaders, I want to hear the conflict because that's only by putting the elephant in the room and we all sort of try to figure this out, can we actually make progress.
0: Wow, great words of wisdom. I I think I couldn't agree with both of your comments more. I think you know, it's incredibly important, again, as we talked about earlier that, you know, we, we are leading in different generations today and different generations also have different needs. So your ability to be an agile leader. You know, at the enterprise level, it's going to involve a lot of dimensions, and you know, Michelle and and um, Ivan have brought us through many dimensions and nuances. But clearly, within all of your different organizations, you have cultures, like enterprise cultures, you have subcultures, you have your own teams. So, be really mindful that that is really an important part of your of your development and your leadership, and and not to sort of you know leave that part behind you know I think lawyers have been quite well known to say well you know it's all about just doing good legal work if we're a department that delivers a good contract that should we've done our job and it's really more than that because in this day and age your ability to influence across all these stakeholders both internal and external is going to be a huge determinant for your success so again, do invest in your in your own, you know, leadership journey. I mean, maybe even get a coach if you feel like, you know, I'm not getting it from my organization. Again, it's an investment in yourself to Ivan's point, the CEO of you, um, you know, put some, you know, put some investment in in your own continued journey. So I I think, you know, w- with that, you know, you know, I I want to, you know, th- you know, thank Michelle and Ivan for again sharing so much wisdom for us today. I do want to have some time that's left for Q&A, you know, and, and we have more than Ivan and Michelle who can answer questions as well. We've got GCs on the floor. So anyone with a question? Yes, sure. I understand that the general counsel usually work with the outside counsel. So what kind of requirements, the expectations you have in your mind
1: when you do need to search for outside counsel? Thank you. Sure. Uh, so for me, kind of table stakes for outside counsel is, is finding people who will take the time to learn us, to learn our business, to learn our industry, to learn um, the internal dynamics because What the difference between great and okay outside, it's like, you know, knowing the law, right? Having the substantive answer is is the floor. Um, What I'm looking for is someone who will become
2: an extension of the team, a true partner. So you're not gonna like my answer, which is do great work for very little cost. Oh yeah, well
1: that too, yes, that too, Yes. yes.
2: I agree with Michelle being, being the partner, knowing really what the ultimate goal is. So to me, I am really appreciative when an outside counsel says um, the way to resolve this is to do something that actually resolves it. It, right. it means there's less work for you to do. But from the company's perspective, it's, it's the most efficient answer. You know, companies are in the business of doing other things, not in, Doing litigation or doing the transaction, so you know you're there to solve a problem, to solve it in the most efficient way, to do it with a high degree of communication, being responsive. All of those, as Michelle says, are are table stakes, and it's 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 um, you know it's a bit about relationships, but it's also about just being consistently delivering highest quality service at the lowest possible price. <laughs> Walmart, do more for less.
1: <laughs>
2: um, hi, so Asian Americans are historically less likely to aggressively negotiate compensation. When you have a candidate that you're hiring who comes in trying to negotiate compensation, how do you guys feel about it? And what are some things that you like and dislike about negotiation practices for candidates?
1: So I applaud people who will ask for something. Um, I I, compl- I couldn't agree more, right? That it, you know that oftentimes. You know, Asian Americans won't um, advocate for themselves, but it needs to be grounded in some kind of fact. It has to have some basis. So, the, a, a mistake sometimes that people make is they, you know, p- offer this big counteroffer, but it's not based on benchmarks. It's not based on um, the level of expertise or the role or 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 the or, or geography. I mean, it really it, you have to articulate kind of what the basis is for, for the ask. Um, but I did tell one candidate who, who, I, who I ended up hiring and, and has become one of my most trusted deputies. Um, she apologized to me after, you know, we settled and, and on a package and she came. And she said, oh, you know, I'm sorry that I asked for things. I said, you know, quite the contrary. I mean, she's an M&A lawyer. I said, if you didn't, I would question your ability to
2: negotiate, which is a core, a core part of this role, so... So I want to separate two different situations. It's a great question. Um, the general counsel negotiation and then everything else. So starting with the everything else, I think Michelle's exactly right, right? The, uh, I, I actually give the advice, and there's somebody in the room whom I've been recently working with to negotiate a good package. Um, it starts from the very beginning of the process, where your goal in the interview process is to have them fall in love with you. That is your only right. goal, right? Don't talk about salary, compensation. They need to fall in love with you first, right. right? Because then you have leverage, right? Once you get the offer, then you've been the selected person, they love you, they want you, right? They can just see you in the role and and that's really the only leverage that you have. You, you know, they're going to have to start from scratch or they go to their second candidate, right? It's just from the employer's perspective, right? You have them at least a little bit. And then, as Michelle says, know your value, right? So bring some comparable data, if you have any that's out there. And usually, whenever I've done these negotiations on the employer side, right, there is usually some room. And you'll see standard advice, right? Once you hit sort of the monetary limit, there's other stuff, right? have them pay for you to go to NAPABA every year, or do other <laughs> professional activities. That's a activities. good one. <laughs> um, you know, vacation time, other things that are important to you that, you know, they may be willing to give. But yes, compensation is important, and, you know, unless you're willing to walk away, or worse yet, and I think this was the, the heart of the question, um, you know, if you end up with bad feelings, right, then, then it's really not worth it. So So you have to sometimes leave a little bit of money on the table with the understanding that as long as you feel like you are going to be treated fairly, right, going forward. But, but it's a tough question. The general counsel negotiation, on the other hand, is, I think, a different animal. I learned this in one of my first GC roles where somebody said, you need to hire uh, an executive comp lawyer. So uh, the benefit is that you are then not doing the negotiation. Somebody else can say something that you cannot say, right? This person can say, Ivan is the greatest thing since sliced bread, right? You really need him at this moment in time. And I can't say that, right? I I can't really sell myself. But if you have a third party not only singing your praises but being able to test the water, right, to say, well, you know, this is his expectation, can you meet us there, right, and, and that way you are above the fray. Now, that didn't work in other situations where the employer doesn't want to deal with your agent. This is why, right, high-paid entertainers and athletes have agents. This is exactly why. You need somebody to negotiate on your behalf. It is worth it. It is so worth it, and the best thing is sometimes you can get the, uh, the company to pay for your lawyer. Because that's just yes. part,
1: of yes. cost, yeah. part of the cost.
2: Part of the cost of bringing you on, and you know, you do need somebody who's an expert on how to value options and RSUs that you may be leaving behind, right? So this is an area of expertise that one of the things you have to learn is what do I don't know, right? I don't know how to do a good valuation. Maybe I sort of know, but I'm not doing it every day. Here is somebody who does this for a living. So, Selena.
0: No, totally. I mean, that, that's all fantastic advice. And maybe I'll speak on behalf of the corporation since I do represent these companies in these negotiations, right? And, and I think two things you want to be aware of. Firstly, you know, you may have in your mind, okay, this is the set of numbers I'm looking at and, and that's what I'm going to negotiate for. Also understand sometimes that, you know, every company has their ranges, they've done their benchmarks. They you know, if it's a big enough company, okay, if it's a smaller company, maybe they've not done their ranges or homework. But if it's a reasonable size company, they would have done comp benchmarks. They would have their ranges for each level of executive role and beyond. And so if you're demanding something that is way out of their range, you know there are equity issues as well. Um, if they bring you in at an outsized number and people at your level are making much less, that's going to be a problem, and they can't do it. So sometimes if a company is really saying, this is our line, and here's why we can't do it, you, you would have to respect it. And if, if, you don't, if you feel that that's just not what you are willing to accept, then and I guess you need to back off. I think what is also good um, you know, good practice is if you're working with a recruiter, you should lay your expectations out on comp earlier on. Don't wait till, you know, let's say the company has fallen in love with you or you have fallen in love with the company either way, and then you realize that the compensation is really, you know, right. there's a huge gap because that's not going to be positive on either side, right? Because there's only that much that the company can do. And if your expectations or where you are today is such a big gap from where they are, then it's actually best not to even engage. So I I think that's the type of things you should be aware of. And when a recruiter, um, you know, in the company or outside independent recruiters, they're working for these companies, ask you for your compensation expectations, don't say, I'm not telling you. (laughs) I, I hear that all the time. Well, you know, I'm not going to negotiate against myself. So I'm like, well, you're not. Because if you don't tell us what your expectations are, there's going to be a potential problem at the end of the journey. And then you've invested tons of hours interviewing and doing all that stuff, and then you realize there is a big gap. So when when a recruiter from the company or an, or an independent one asks you that question, do tell them, like, hey, guess what? I have this huge tranche of stock that is $2 million worth that I expect to be you know, getting in May of next year. That has to be taken care of or I'm not considering this role. That would be a good thing to tell yeah. them upfront.
1: Absolutely. <laughs>
0: because if you didn't, again, lopsided expectations and everyone's gonna end up being disappointed. So those are very good things to know. and, and and it shows your level of sophistication as well versus saying, well, I'm not telling you anything because I'm not negotiating against myself, okay?
2: Just to emphasize this point uh, from personal experience. So I came from the school of exactly that. Uh, the first question the recruiter will ask is, how much do you currently make? And I said, I'm not telling you. <laughs> I just, yeah. This is private inf- I have since learned, no, just get over it. Just get over it. <laughs> Tell them how much you currently make. And then the expectation, this is my sort of benchmark rule, it's going to take 20% higher to dislodge me from my current situation. I'm very happy where I am. Right. And this is another career advice, right? Don't run from a job. Run towards something, right? Of course, there are reasons why you want to join the other company. But if you're in a position where you're actually looking for a reason to leave, then you're really not as able to negotiate right. as well. But, don't be afraid to just put everything on the table. It is for a good cause. It's hard. Can I take us back to leadership advice, please? Longtime listener, first time caller. Thank you very much, Michelle and Ivan. Really appreciate uh, some tactical advice about building your teams and leadership in a remote world. Asking for a friend. Thanks. I don't have any great advice, unfortunately. It's very hard. I believe in getting out and meeting people face to face in the first instance. And then it's much easier over Zoom to get together and and have meetings and work. So no substitute for meeting in person. Do get to know them as people. Share a meal with them if you can. but if you can't, you can't, right? I have a team of lawyers in China. I've said I'm going to come visit you. They say no, it's not. You know, it's just practically very difficult. You're going to have to quarantine. It's just a royal pain. And I say no, I really want to. So you know, we've just done hours and hours and hours of Zoom, and you just do the best you can. But the point is to invest the time to learn about and from the team. Yeah, I completely agree with
1: that. And I, I also you know, love to meet people in person. It's how I, I draw energy. And it just, there's really no substitute for it. But in the absence of the ability to do that, communicate a lot. Like, I, I very intentionally spend a lot of my time kind of investing in the team and, and doing skip levels and meeting people you know, one-on-one on Zoom. Because particularly when you're trying to drive change, Right, so if you're rolling out a new direction for the department with a new mission statement and, and new strategic objectives, it takes time for those things to stick. So one piece of advice that I got was right at the point where I, where I started to feel like I, am, I sound like a broken record is when it's really starting to get lift in the organization. So communicate a lot. Okay, with that, I, I know we are, we've
0: run out of time. There's a lot of hands I saw, but you know, obviously feel free to reach out to these folks um, as they you know, get to their lunches, um, et cetera. So thank you again for being such a great audience today, and thank you so much to Michelle and Ivan.
2: Thanks for being a great moderator, Selena. Yeah, thank you,
1: Selena.